So welcome to Epiphany. We're in a new season now. Uh, some of you know that, some of you don't. Let me tell you a little bit about it. This season of Epiphany carries forward a very important theme of Christmas, which was the light of Christ. Epiphany is all about the far-reaching light of Jesus, the light of the world, the light for the world. That's what Epiphany is about. So here's a Messiah who comes to not only deliver his people, so this is not some sectarian God, this is not some parochial God, this is not a national God who doesn't care about the other nations. This is a God for all the nations. So Epiphany reminds us of this grand and redemptive vision of our Lord, that Jesus is the light to and for all the nations. God revealing himself to all nations. So we entered this season on Wednesday. Crazy timing that was. Uh, that was the Feast of the Epiphany. So in the West, the way we focus on Epiphany is usually by focusing on the story of the three magi, the three wise men. That's sort of the consummate Epiphany story. Uh, some of you might have celebrated that. Some folks call it Three Kings Day. Uh, we made something called a king's cake. We made it. We, we bought it, actually. Uh, we had a king's cake at our house and celebrated Epiphany in that way. Um, but why that story for Epiphany? What I've told you, why the three wise men, why the three magi? Well, here is God using the birth of Jesus to woo these three pagan magi from the Far East to himself. So God's mission and heart for those outside of Judaism. We see that in this story. It's the light of Christ shining into the whole world. His revelation of life to everyone. So that's why Epiphany season is so closely connected, often with mission. Hope that kind of makes sense. So I may have put the cart before the horse here. Uh, Epiphany, some of you may know what it means, some of you may not. It's a 10 cent word. I'll tell you what it means. It means a manifestation of God. So it's God revealing himself to us in a very clear and unmistakable way, special way. Uh, on the first Sunday of Epiphany, we always celebrate the baptism of Jesus. Always. That's always the first Sunday after Epiphany. Why is that? Why is his baptism important? What does uh, his baptism have to do with mission uh, or his uh, Jesus being the light of the world? I'm going to address all those questions as we move through Mark 1. 7 through 11. So let's go there now. So remember, Mark is our Hemingway of the four gospel writers. He is our essentialist. He's our, hey, just the facts. He's all about brevity. Uh, Mark's account couldn't be more terse or condensed when you compare it to the other gospel accounts. Jesus' baptism gets like three verses. I mean, it is just to the point. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to fill out that baptismal picture and I'm going to draw upon uh, the parallel accounts in Luke 3, and Matthew 3 and John 1. So I'm going to conflate and combine a little bit. So if you're following along in your Bibles and you're going, wait a minute, that doesn't say that. That means I'm pulling from a different passage and kind of filling out the picture. Okay. Nobody's doing any funky theology. No monkey business up here. Okay. So uh, the two main players in this passage, no surprise, John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, lest we forget, they are family. Okay. Although somewhat distant family. So Mary and Elizabeth, their moms, were perhaps first cousins, some translations say relatives. Uh, so we don't know if they were, you know, an aunt and a niece or two cousins exactly. Uh, we do know they're related. So we know that they're relatives, that much we know, at the very least. And the Gospels don't give us a lot of detail in terms of John and Jesus' shared history of 30 years. But there's little doubt they're familiar with each other. So even though John grew up in, in Judah, the hill country, the sticks, and Jesus grew up in Nazareth, right, that small little agricultural forgettable town, 
their families would have stayed connected in some way, probably through even the annual feasts, the three annual feasts uh, in Jerusalem. They would have stayed connected. So they knew each other. Okay? Now, how can I say that? Well, folks, family was very essential in Jewish culture. I want you to think about how Mary and Elizabeth shared their stories so readily of their pregnancies with one another. You know, Mary seeks out Elizabeth after the Annunciation, confides in her about her miraculous pregnancy. John leaps in Elizabeth's womb. Pretty doubtful that Elizabeth would have kept the nature of Jesus' birth a secret from John, who was also a miraculous baby. So my point in this, these are the kind of stories that families share, especially mothers when they talk about their kids together. So even if Jesus and John aren't close on a day-to-day basis, and they probably weren't, it's safe to assume they weren't total strangers. So as we go into this conversation between them, I want us to sort of have that sense of things. Okay, We need to note that when we encounter them in the Gospels. They're not strangers. They know each other. So we're going to pick up the interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist uh, midstream. And some of this uh, you heard back in, I believe it was Advent. So there's a little bit of crossover between talking about John the Baptist as a forerunner uh, from Advent and this. But I'll keep that real brief. So uh, Mark 1.4 tells us that John is in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what he's up to. He's a forerunner. The good forerunner that he is, John the Baptist, is baptizing, he's preaching up a storm, and he's preparing Israel to meet Jesus. That's kind of where we pick it up at Mark 1, 7 to 8. And this is John speaking to the crowds. Okay? After me comes one, Jesus, who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John continually exalts and lifts up Jesus, okay, in his ministry. He faithfully executes that gritty, uh, preliminary, unsexy grunt work of a forerunner, and he knows his place in the great salvation story. And that's what I think this part, this verse is hinting at. John will later say, he must increase and I must decrease. He exalts Jesus, okay? John's proclamation doesn't stop there. He says, I've been bab- I baptize you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you uh, with the Holy Spirit. So he speaks very plainly of the Holy Spirit here, that coming need to be born again. He's heralding the coming kingdom of God, this new era which Jesus will bring with him. And alongside his preaching, he's baptizing, right? He's John the baptizer, and he's doing it in the mighty Jordan River. John is no dummy. He's doing it there for a reason. It's a famous boundary marker that separated the promised land from slavery, right? That was the boundary. Once the Jews crossed over the Jordan, their exodus from uh, Egypt was complete. They were out of the wilderness. So when they entered the waters of the Jordan, they were leaving their wandering and stepping towards the fulfillment of God's promises. So you've got slavery on one side, promised land on the other, uh, River Jordan right there in the middle, right? You've got old life, new life, death, life. Could there be a more fitting place to baptize anyone? I don't think so. So the significance there is is really impossible to miss. John, no dummy. The right idea, and he's got the right location. Okay, that catches us up. And so Jesus, as others do, have done, seeks out John to be baptized, right? So people do. They come find him in the wilderness. He journeys all the way from Galilee out out into the wilderness to find John to be baptized. Now, not totally unlike Christian baptism, uh, Jewish baptism was a rite of of cleansing. That was the symbolism. And baptism, I think, went hand in hand with what John was preaching about. Repent. In other words, turn around. Return to the Lord. 
So he baptized people as a sign, an outward sign of that inner change of heart, that repentance. Now, Jesus coming to be baptized raises some serious questions. Why is that? Jesus is free from sin. So what's he going to get cleansed of exactly? What's that all about? Why does he choose to be baptized at all? And that really is the question for me in this passage, and we'll spend time in that. Here's my answer, the beginning of it. In some of the other gospel accounts, John protests when Jesus comes. Basically says, whoa, this is all wrong. This is backwards. Uh, you should baptize me. This is wrong. And I want you to hear how Jesus responds to John's protests, because I think that eliminates some of the why. Here's what Jesus says. He basically says, let's do it, it's my translation, for it's proper or fitting for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. That's Jesus' answer. It's proper, fitting for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. So in answering John's protestations, Jesus said it's proper and fitting. And what he's talking about here is to fulfill Mosaic law. That's what we're talking about. Uh, let's remember, go back to Jesus' very early days. A very young Jesus was presented in the temple, according to the law. A very young Jesus was circumcised in adherence to the law. The necessary temple offerings were made according to the law. Mary and Joseph did these things in accordance with the law. Everything a devout Jew would do with their child. So it makes sense that Jesus would also choose baptism to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, to fulfill or satisfy Mosaic law. That's the reason he gives to John. Now, this is consonant with Scripture. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, but to perfectly fulfill it, right? And in fact, to go above and beyond what a human could do. Uh, the book of Hebrews bears that out. Countless other passages in the New Testament make that clear. That's why we call him the second Adam. We sang about that a moment ago. It's a divine redo. Okay, so Jesus fulfills and satisfies the law. Okay, let's probe a little deeper into the big why behind Jesus's baptism. John's baptism is one of confession and repentance. Let me give you a quiz. Does Jesus have any sins to confess? Nope. A lot of, a lot of nopes. Uh, did he need to repent of anything? No? No chance he forgot a little something? No? Okay. No repentance needed. Uh, any cleansing of his sins? Did he need that? No. Jesus did not need to be baptized for the same reasons we do. So why did he do it? What is the deeper reason? I think the point of his baptism, the big why, is about identifying with us. It is about identification. It's the same reason for the incarnation, the same reason he takes on flesh. He identifies with us. So Jesus is baptized to show solidarity with us. He's just living out what it means to be Emmanuel, God with us and God for us. Here's the sinless one who chooses to be baptized by a sinner. Having no sins to confess, Jesus volunteers to identify himself with everyone he came to serve, right? This is God saying, I'm in your corner, guys. I couldn't be more in your corner. Now, this makes sense when you think of who Jesus spent time with. All those tax collectors, prostitutes, the poor, the Samaritans, the day laborers. Oh, it's so fortunate we're nothing like them. <laughs> People in need of him, just like you and I, right? 
This is God saying, I'm on your side. I couldn't be more on your side. I don't need to do this. I don't have to do this, but I'm willing to do this because I love you. In the other gospel accounts, John consents. Jesus reasons with him, and it's really clear that John doesn't get all the reasons fully. Uh, he doesn't fully understand everything, but he consents and, and he obeys. He moves forward in obedience, and he, he baptizes Jesus. As Jesus comes up out of the water, immediately he saw heaven being torn open, which I find this a remarkable description, given this is Mark the Brief. Uh, but it's a very dramatic description of how creation visibly responds to this unbelievable moment. And the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. Notice this happens after baptism. And there's a voice from heaven, God the Father, affirming, confirming Jesus' identity. Notice there's, this is an incredible two-part yes. There's the sign of the dove, and there's the words of blessing. It's a two-part yes, sacramental to the core. This is not just some divine attaboy. Oh, Jesus, I'm proud of you. Go out there and go get him. No. That's way too shallow of a reading. This is one of the great Trinitarian passages in the entire New Testament. Every person of the Godhead is here and in full view. Okay, The veil between heaven and earth is, is rendered open. In other words, we got to pay attention. This is really, really important. Part one of that yes, the sign the dove coming down, Holy Spirit. All four evangelists, all four gospel writers mention this, the descent of the Holy Spirit as a dove. And Luke makes a specific point uh, that the dove descends in bodily form. The only reason for that is just saying, hey, it really was there. It really happened. This is an anointing, I want to say, by the Holy Spirit. And it's a sense of Jesus' commissioning as the Messiah King. The Holy Spirit's unequivocal Yes, to the work of the faithful son. This anointing makes it clear that a new king has come. The pattern for how the kings of Israel were chosen was this. God spoke his choice to the prophets and they anointed a king. Well, here is John the Baptist, the last and the mightiest, Jesus will call him, of the Old Testament prophets. And he's anointing and marking out the final and the mightiest king, the king of kings. So Jesus' baptism is, divine, is, in a sense, kind of a divine coronation of the mediator of a new covenant. The dove, the Holy Spirit, descends upon Jesus and he drives that point home, anointing Jesus and fulfilling the promise of Isaiah 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord God has anointed me. Now, for us, we see the dove and we make that equate, we equate that with the Holy Spirit. No big deal. Like, we know that. But the Holy Spirit's choice of using a dove then and to that audience is puzzling. It wasn't this accepted symbol of the Holy Spirit yet at all. Uh, usually the Holy Spirit showed up as like you know, fire or wind or something like that. But a dove is a far more gentle and common uh, symbol, if you will. It's not like the Lord hovering over the surface of the deep, uh, the waters in that creation account in Genesis 1-2. I find that very intriguing. That might be the real point here. God marking a new beginning, perhaps. But there could also be an even earthier, more obvious reason that the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. The dove is the only bird permitted as a sacrifice under the Levitical sacrificial system. And you know what? It was reserved for the poorest of the poor. This is for people who couldn't afford a lamb. Okay? That was the dove. 
In that case, I think the dove drives home the point that our Messiah is humble and he is lowly and that our Messiah comes from the margins and is for those in the margins. So the dove, that is part one of the yes. Part two of the yes, God the Father's words, right? Sign words. The voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with who, with you I am well pleased. Very familiar words to us. They come about in the transfiguration later on. Jesus is beloved. Okay, we know that means loved, but it means a lot more than that. It means that he is special. It means that he is like no other. And it means he is singular in God the Father's eyes. There's amazing tenderness in this. And this is a love that we're told existed before time began. All of eternity. The Father and the Son. Augustine, one of the, one of the times he tries to you wrote a lot about the Trinity, and one of the ways he tries to describe it in its most basic form is uh, here's the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit is this bond of love that eternally flows back and forth between them. So Jesus is a beloved, he's beloved as an only child would be. All that person's attention love is poured upon them. It's the same way God manages to love each of us, by the way. So how he manages to love all of us as if an only child, I don't know, but God is God. God is good. So John 3.35 says the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So another thing that God is, the Father is doing here with his words, besides saying Jesus is beloved and unique and singular, is that he's giving him all authority in heaven and on earth. It's vested in the Son. So this is God the Father's unequivocal yes to Jesus and his mission to seek and save the lost. His uh, stamp of approval, his certification, if you will, of Jesus the Son. Here's the mediator of the new covenant. Here we go. So, the Holy Spirit, sign of the dove, and God the Father's words affirm and commission Jesus for what lies ahead. That's a big two-part yes. Can't miss that. So this is all of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, on display and in full view here. Okay? The affirming voice of God the Father, speaking with pleasure and delight and confirmation over Son Jesus, the servant Messiah King, and the Holy Spirit anointing Jesus as a clear symbol of God the Father's yes. Again, this is all of God at work to save all of us right here. Grand two-part yes. As I said, when you see an epiphany, which this is, when you see epiphanies of this sort, uh, you pay attention to them. They're rare in the scriptures, but this is one of them. So when God shows up here in full force, we've got to pay attention. God doesn't... Uh, rend the veil between heaven and earth just for kicks. He doesn't reveal so much of himself without reason. Jesus' baptism is an example of the great exchange. He became us that we might become like him. Okay, so Jesus' affirmation that we see here becomes ours. And Jesus' mission becomes ours too. So with the baptism of Jesus, God makes it really clear He's all in, that he stands with us, that he stands for us, that he'll cross that great divide between heaven and earth, between death and life, and he'll make that great exchange for us. And the baptism of Jesus, I think, marks the beginning of that great exchange of his life for the sinner. He's baptized on our behalf as our substitute. Here's what's fascinating to me. Shouldn't be, but it really struck me this time as I read this passage. Jesus is walking the way of the cross way before the crucifixion ever happens, right? He's already laying down his life for us way before the crucifixion happens. 
happens. That, that's just the, that's just the uh, high point. He does that the whole of his life. He takes up our cause. <laughs> he serves us. He sacrifices for us. His riches for our rags. He volunteers to go above and beyond the law as a way to serve us. And to say I'm in your corner, that's the great exchange, right? Riches for rags. Now, what an unbelievable assurance uh, that Jesus receives the same baptism we do. i got to love that. That reminds us that we're engrafted into his body. As our baptismal liturgy says, we're buried with him in baptism, but we're raised to newness of life. Romans 6, 4. After baptism, his baptism, this is the way the narrative goes. Jesus' ministry begins in earnest. It is after that point. Okay? That's why I think this is a commissioning and a coronation and a sending and an affirmation and confirmation. Uh, put whatever word on that you'd like. The mission of God commences in an entirely new, different way, in a definitive way. Again, that's why Epiphany is so connected to mission. Let me give you the subtext. If Jesus offered himself to us so freely, great exchange, right? Aren't we called to do the same on behalf of other people, right? Isn't that what mission is all about? So, I'll end here. Because it's cold. And I think this is where we need to land. So let's land here. And I'm going I'm to use my words really carefully here. King of Kings already has, and here's what I want you to hear, a, a God-given and a God-ordained mission field. And it's called East Charlotte. Okay? That's where God's leading us. That call is clear. We're following into leaning into that, following that. So what are we to make in this missional season of this new mission field that is East Charlotte? Is there a concrete step you can take? I'm so glad you asked. So good of you. At the very least, invest your prayers in East Charlotte. Pray for East Charlotte. If you haven't been, begin to pray. Show up on the 16th. Yes, it's a Saturday. Yes, it's two hours. Show up on the 16th for guided prayer. Go around East Charlotte. Pray for those places. Look at the people that are there. Commit to praying faithfully to that place that we will call home. And I hope very soon. Invest yourselves in that place, those people. Walk the land, you know, in a biblical sense. Kind of go and walk the land and survey it. Go walk the land. Cover it with your prayers. That's my challenge for us during Epiphany. I'd like for us to do that, to think, how can we live out missionality? That's even a word. How can we live out missionality, Charlotte? What does that look like? Well, let's begin with prayer, right? Let's, let's not cart before horses. Let's begin with prayer. 